The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And it's always an interesting week in technology. The crypto market has been going crazy with ups and downs. Ethereum's been going up, Bitcoin's been going up, and there are reasons for that. We'll try to get to that. If we can, because we've got a special segment on today's show. We're going back to the beginning of the Internet when people were trying to figure out what was going on. We're going to feature a man by the name of Stuart Brand. He was one of the Pied Pipers in the beginning of the Internet when they were trying to figure out what it's useful for. So we're going to go back and look at the humanistic side of the Internet and how it began and we're going to trace the evolution of the Internet to today with the divisive platforms like Facebook and try to figure out where we went wrong. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. I got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Shirts. Time for NFT, non-fungible token, part two. Your previous discussion on NFT answered many questions, but just how does one register an NFT? Like if a culinary student at Stratford University developed a new unique sauce, for example, and wanted to record it with an NFT token, how would they, he or she, record it with an NFT? Is there a unique URL? Um what would she have to be able to do to deal with Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrencies? Just trying to understand the procedure. Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, Arnie, it's a good question. Um, NFTs are fairly easy to set up. I'll try to go through a process here uh, to explain it. NFTs are really one of the hottest crypto uh, trends in 2021. We Overall sales have been up 55% since 2020. They went from $250 million a year to $389 million a year. So a lot of money are making on non-fungible tokens. And uh, these are uh, non-fungible tokens or like uh, certificates of authenticity, as I explained uh, last week. And they're unique crypto assets that, that can be collected. Now, the idea has been around since 2012 uh, when the concept of the Bitcoin colored coins first emerged. Those were colored coins that had unique attributes, and then people would buy them because of those attributes. NFTs can be used to represent virtually any type of real or intangible item, including artwork, visual items in video games like, uh, like skins or like garments. They could represent games, music, collectibles, real estate, cars, racehorses, virtual land like you'd have in Second Life, or and much more. 
Creating your own NFT artwork is relatively a straightforward process and does not require much knowledge of the crypto industry. Now, but before you start, you need to decide which blockchain you want to use for your NFTs. Now, NFTs are basically recorded in a blockchain, and the blockchain is what is what maintains the um, the provenance, as they say. It shows who sold it to who, sold it to who. And so you can track the authenticity of the NFT by looking at the transfers and did, it, the, did the original transfer come from the originator of the art. Now, Ethereum is currently the leading blockchain which is being used for NFT issuances. Now, the reason Ethereum is being used is that Ethereum has a... a scripting language built on top of it and people have written nft applications that sit on top of the ethereum blockchain they've made it very easy to create app for developers to create applications using the ethereum blockchain so there then so there are a number of nft services that have been built on the ethereum blockchain so most of the nfts are using ethereum as their as their blockchain, and of course, the cryptocurrency relating to that is Ether. I mean, I created a um, now. One problem with Ethereum is that currently it's proof of stake. It's kind of slow to do the transactions. There, I mean, it's proof of work like Bitcoin, so it's slow to do the transactions. They're getting ready to transition to network version 2.0, which is proof of stake, which is going to be a lot faster and also cheaper. And that's why Ethereum right now is just shooting through the roof because they're getting ready to switch to that uh, new network. I created an NFT on Ethereum maybe two or three months ago, and, and it was quite slow. I mean, I did notice the lag time. It took, I, I created it. It took, took five minutes for me to get confirmation that my NFT had been created, which is a little slow. Now, now since Ethereum has the largest NFT ecosystem, um, I'd suggest use Ethereum. Uh, to for your thing now the first thing you need to do arnie you need a wallet you need an ethereum wallet and the wallet should uh, support the erc-721 standard that's the ethereum based standards relating to nft tokens now there are three wallets you could use you could use the the meta the metamask wallet you could use the trust wallet or you could use the coinbase wallet metamask Trust Wallet or Coinbase Wallet. I've been using the Coinbase Wallet for my NFTs. Do you li literally go to a website and find these things? I mean, yeah, you just go to Coinbase.com. You can mm -hmm. you, you can get it, and you, and you can you can just you can actually set up a wallet right there very easily. Okay. Uh, now the main thing now because of the IRS, when you set up a wallet, you've got to put you have to put all your tax ID in it because the IRS wants to track the money that you make on these exchanges. So most of the thing when you set up the wallet is, is identity verification and making certain you've registered all the IRS data. But you can set up your wallet, and, uh, and Coinbase meets that standard. Then you want to put some money in the wallet so it's active, $50 or so in the wallet. And, and you, like if you're on Coinboost, you can easily transfer money directly from your bank account into your wallet, and they just do the conversion, and you've got it right then there. Now, once you have these, you have to pick... Uh, a, a NFT-centric platform that's sitting on top of Ethereum that you want to use. Uh, there are three of them that are pretty popular. One is OpenSea, one is Rarible, and the third one is Mintable. OpenSea, Rarible, and Mintable. Now, 
And then what you do, this is the this is the platform that you use for creating the NFT. And so once you pick your uh, your platform, and I'm going to give OpenSea as the example as we go through it. And again, you found it on the internet, like you just go through your browser to get to OpenSea. Yeah, you can just you can just search for OpenSea Ethereum, and, and that's C with a SEA. SEA, Open SEA, and you can search for that, and, and you'll you'll come up right with it. And uh, then once you 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 come up with the, uh, and so what essentially what you're going to do is you're going to ha- you're going to you know, first of all, you have to uh, log into OpenSea, create an account, and then you have to connect OpenSea to your wallet. So what you have to do, there, there's a process where you link your wallet to OpenSea, and you you basically, that you, you click on a link to, to link a wallet, and then they will have you put in your password to your wallet to prove that you're the owner of the wallet. And you may have to answer some identity questions to make certain that, you know, you're not somebody trying to steal the wallet. Then the next step, you want to um, hover over the create button. Once you've linked the wallet, you want to go to the over the create button there in OpenSea, and you select my collections. Now, of course, you don't have any collections yet. So then you click the blue create button, and a window will appear that allows you to, um, you know, to... Um, you know, to create your, uh, your, your, um, to upload your artwork. So what you want to do is uh, you, once you uh, have hit the create button, you want to put a name to your collection. Essentially, you are naming uh, the, the subdirectory that you just created. You might want to add a description, say, this is uh, digital photos that were created by blah, 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 and, the, and it's one of a kind. You, you know, you, know, you want to describe what it is. And, um, and, and, and you're describing your folder, which is going to be holding your collection. So this collection, I mean, the, the artwork is actually a digital property. It's actually a digital thing, or is it a photo or something of something that's it, it could real? Be, it could be a photo of something. Mm-hmm. It could be, uh, it's, there, there is some sort of digital record to it. it. And the digital record could be tied to a real item. Right, so a, a, a painting of some sort. Could be a like painting. That. Yeah, okay. It could be a painting. And so the digital record would serve as the certificate of authenticity, okay? Yeah. And so when you sell the painting, for instance, you transfer the NFT to the new owner, and he proves that he got the painting from the artist because the NFT is documenting that transfer through the, through the blockchain. And so once you've got your... Uh, Subdirectory created. Now you can create your first NFT. So what you want to do, you want to add new item to its to the uh, subdirectory. So you click on the add new item button, and then you'll you'll have to, and they'll they'll ask you to sign onto your wallet again. They just want to double check that, and then you'll arrive at a new window that says you can upload. And so you can upload an NFT image, like an image of the artwork. You could upload an audio file, or you could upload a a, a, a picture file like a GIF, or you could do a 3D model, and then you upload it to the subdirectory. And then if you want, you might have special traits or attributes that you could have on it, like this is this is one of a kind, and it's got this particular piece of art only has blue ears. No other art has blue ears. The other one have green ears. And then you hope that the blue ear version is going to be worth more. So you want to create scarcity and uniqueness. Now, once you finish creating it, uh, uh, you can uh, you want to uh, confirm that it's been created, 
And uh, and once you confirm the creation, it will show up in your collection. It's, it's basically a file in your subdirectory. Now, there's no price on it yet. So it costs nothing to create the NFT. So you've created the NFT in OpenSeas. Now, 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 some platforms charge you to create the NFT. OpenSeas does not. Uh, now, the charge for this is like it's the it's what they're paying the miners. When you put it on the blockchain, you got to pay the miner something to validate the transactions. And so, uh, the the fees are what they call gas. Is what it what keeps what keeps Ethereum going. Now, to sell your NFTs on the but on do you have an idea how much they run these fees um, roughly? It's it's just a few percent. It's it's not too a, much. A percentage of it's, whatever you're it's gonna. A, it's a percentage. And one of the criticisms of Ethereum was that the fees were a little bit high because there was so much processing power on it. When they go to the new proof of stake, the the fees are going to come down substantially. Also, the fees vary depending on the uh, the amount of usage on the network. If the if the if the network is really heavily used, the fees are a little bit higher. It's like, like Uber. It's Uber. It's, it's like supply and demand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so you so if you want to create it at, on on low demand low demand times. Okay. Now now to sell your NFTs, you need to locate them in the collection, and then you uh, so you locate. Now, so so you uploaded say five digital pictures for, for instance. So you, you you click on one of them. And then when you when you click on that one, you'll see a, a sell button. So you click sell, and that takes you to a pricing page where you can put the 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 price of the of the NST on it. And you can either set it up as an auction or you can sell it at a fixed price, whatever you want. And um, and you'll be paid in ether or ether tokens. And um, then what you do is that now once you have put a price on your NFT, it's created. But but nobody knows about it, right? So now you have to take your whole, um, your entire uh, subdirectory of all your NFTs, and you have to post them to a marketplace. And so you go to the marketplace, and um, and uh, OpenSea has a marketplace. Others have a marketplace, and then you post your subdirectory of NFTs to the marketplace. And this is where. The description of your mark of of your subdirectories and what you have—that's all your marketing pitch. And you have a you have kind of a banner ad that you put up there to make it look attractive, and you and you try to you, you try to attract people to your NFTs. Normally, when you have to pay money to somebody, is when you add it to the marketplace because that's they're basically selling it. So once you've added it to the marketplace, uh, you just wait for people to find it. Now, when I created my NFT, I just wanted to see how, how to do it. I never actually added it to a marketplace. So nobody's bought it yet. Now, I may go back because I've, I've got some artwork that I've got down at a gallery down in Virginia someplace. And, and I may take – and it's basically digital art that I've, that I've made look like a painting. And I may put some of that up there and create my own F NFTs and try to sell them. At this point, I haven't done it yet. But, it, it, and, but people are making – it's kids are making a lot of money on this thing. They, they, they might make uh, you know cartoon characters, but they'll create a thousand of them, all different variations of colors, and they'll try to have some create a demand where where everybody wants the one with the green ears, and then it's worth more. And these these kids are making money on it. Uh, it it's uh, it's an interesting thing. I'm even uh, you know they even sold a, a copy of the first tweet. And that was just a digital copy, and and that sold for three point six million dollars. Wow! But they could show that they bought a copy of the first tweet from the person who started Twitter. 
And that's what gave it the value, the certificate of authenticity. Uh, a lot of people have the first tweet, but only one person says, I have bought it from the originator of the first tweet, and they can show the transfer as documented in the blockchain. And so uh, people are, um, are, are selling one-of-a-kind, one-offs as NFTs and making a lot of money. So, Arnie, I hope this, I hope this is enough. Now, um, it's kind of complicated, but um, uh, I, you can always go to, the, uh, go to the Stratford University website, techtalk.stratford.edu, um, and you can look at the show transcript. It'll be posted on Monday. And everything that I just gave you, we'll cover in detail there. And that is true of every episode. So it's at techtalk.stratford.edu. That's right. And uh, so that was a good question, Arnie. Sorry it was so complicated, but, but there's no simple way to explain how to set up an NFT. Now we got an email from. Uh, uh, let me. I'm just going to just do one okay. one more email because yeah. we're we're like running out of time. Yeah, I'm just going to skip to the last email here, and and we'll do that. We'll push the other ones to the next show. Got an email from Lois in Erie. Dear Tech Talk, I've heard bad things about Facebook privacy. On um, on one hand, I've heard how families from all over the world can connect and share as though they were still together. But they don't have any privacy. Is there any way to have the best of both worlds where I can share with my family but still maintain privacy from the evil lurkers? Love the show, Lois in Erie, Kansas. Lois, that is a, a very good question because Facebook has been shown to be a, an excellent way for family members to keep in touch from all around the world. Or you can keep in touch with people you graduated from high school. It's easy to find them on, you know, the Facebook infrastructure. Now, but privacy is an issue, and Mark Zuckerberg does not really give a hoot about your privacy. And you never really know what the, what the situation is. But Facebook does have the ability to create groups. So you can create a group, and you can make it secret, or you can make it private, or you can make it open. And uh, if you make it Private, nobody else can see uh, can see what's going on, but they can see that the group exists. If you make it secret, nobody can even see that the group exists. And the only way anybody can be accepted into it is if they're invited by email. So what you want to do to create a group, this is probably the best. This is what I recommend for families, actually. Create a private group for families, and then you'll, you'll maintain privacy. Uh, so open, open up your Facebook account and click on the home link in the toolbar. And then there will be a button there that says Create Group. It's on the left side. And you, then you create a, a suitable name for the group, like the Johnson family or whatever, you, whatever family you are. And then you can set your group's privacy settings. If you set uh, closed groups, uh, closed prevents non-members from seeing any postings. Uh, uh, and it also uh, sets up the privacy parameters so that new members must be approved by a group administrator. Now, closed, uh, but then people can see that the group exists. Somebody could search for Johnson Family Group, and they would find it there. And maybe you don't want to have Aunt Matilda finding it and then wanting to join it. So then you might want to keep it secret. So if you want to keep it secret, then it, it doesn't show up in any searches and nobody even knows it exists. So you have a choice of making it closed, which hides all the postings. You could keep it secret, which hides even the name of the group, or 
what you don't want to do is make it open. Then anybody can anybody can see everything. Uh, now, when you create the group, you have to have at least one family member added to the group. Which and that what the family member is going to have to have a Facebook account. You're going to have to know their Facebook ID. So you add one person to the to the group, and then once you do that, you hit the create button. And then you and then once then you can change the appearance of the group. So you want to uh, once you've created the group, you can uh, set up the basic appearance by clicking the gear icon at the top of the page and selecting edit the group. And you can upload a cover photo and you can describe the group. This is blah, 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 whatever you want to say about your group, and then that's all there is to it. And then you can add members. So if you make it uh, closed, family members can go to that. They can search for that group within Facebook, and they can request to join it, and you as administrator can accept them. If it's secret, you've got to invite people personally. This is a very good way to work with Facebook and get the advantages of linking your family without the disadvantages of giving up all your privacy. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. We will do that. And next we'll take a trip, and I mean trip, back in time to 1966 and uh, over to San Francisco. You can only imagine what was going on back then. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Today we're going to feature Stuart Brand. Stuart Brand is an American writer, best known as editor and creator of the Whole Earth Catalog, and is co-founder of The Well, the first virtual online community. Brand was born December 14, 1938 in Rockford, Illinois. From 54 to 56, he attended the Phillips Executor Academy in New Hampshire, in 1960, he graduated from Stanford University with a B.S. in biology. Now, he was an active-duty military from 1960 to 1962. He was an Army officer. While he was in the Army, he took up skydiving, 
He taught basic infantry trainer, and he worked as a photojournalist out of the Pentagon. I mean, during the time of the Vietnam War, being a photojournalist in the Pentagon, that was a good gig, I think. In 62, he, um, after he got out of the military, he studied design at the San Francisco Art Institute, and he also studied photography at San Francisco State. Now, this was back when Timothy Leary was doing his research on LSD, and he participated in, he's very clear to say, the legal LSD studies at the International Foundation for Advanced Study in Menlo Park, California. He was uh, a tripping on uh, LSD, I think, between 68 and 70. I think that's the time frame. From 63 to 66, he researched photography. He researched, he photographed, he designed, he performed uh, multimedia events. uh, And he was actually working on creating a, um, a display and a presentation about American Indians. Uh, and, he, and he traveled to Indian reservations all over the West. Now, ninth, from 1964 to 66, he hung out with Ken Casey in, of the Merry Pranksters, and, uh, and he participated in some of the early, as they say, acid tests. Which were like events, almost like a, a meetup, but with, uh, with drugs involved. That's right. So what they did, they would, you know, people would, would, would go to the meetup, and the question was, could you take LSD and pass the acid test? So the question is, after the, after the rock concert was over, had you passed the acid test? That was the question. Now, in 1966, he designed the Trips Festival. It was actually a light festival involving trips. And it was a three-day rock concert. It was a watershed event there at Longshoreman's Hall. And it's the first time that the Grateful Dead ever performed in San Francisco. They did it at his Trips Festival. Well, here, here's the thing. I have to say, uh, this is not a joke this time. This is actually the uh, the Grateful Dead uh, playing back in 1966 at the Fillmore Auditorium. So this is not from the Trips Festival itself, but it gives you some idea. Oops, a wrong song. Sorry about yeah. that. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. This is honestly the the dead at the time. I don't know if they sound a little rough. I don't know if that I don't know that they ever got any better than this, but this is what they sounded like in 1966. Yeah. Yeah, all right. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. Now what happened was it was interesting. Ten thousand hippies showed up at this trips concert. Can you imagine that. 10,000 hippies. They had no idea that there were so many hippies in San Francisco. I bet they didn't all fill uh, the Longshoreman's Hall. They must have been out in the the pier, too. They must have been out on the pier. But 10,000 hippies showed up, and this was in the Haight-Ashbury section, and it became a community. This was the bonding event that started the hippie movement. Now, if if you can imagine, this was back in the um, late 60s, you know, the Vietnam War. And, there, and, and the Vietnam War was going on. I think it ended in 68 or so. I'm trying to think. Well, Nixon finally pulled him out in 72. But in 72. Yeah. It, was, it was winding. We'd been in a wind down in 68. They pulled out in 72. And so it was tearing the fabric apart. 
And these hippies wanted to somehow reinvent civilization. And what was their their uh, mantra? Make love, not war. Because they wanted to totally eradicate any possibility of another Vietnam War. And that's the culture there in that community that was in in, in San Francisco at that time. And it, Stuart Brand actually started a couple of communes where they were trying to reinvent uh, reinvent civilization. And, um, uh, and he was, uh, you know, quite successful at that. Now, now he lived in California since the 60s. Uh, he and his second wife uh, lived on a 64-foot working tugboat in Sausalito, California. So he just lived on a boat. He didn't, he didn't really need a house. Now, in 66, while on an LSD trip, on the roof of his house, uh, on the roof of a house in North Beach of in San Francisco, he became convinced that if people could see the whole Earth, a picture of the entire Earth in space, it would somehow change their perspective of living on Earth, and we might try to protect the planet. So he started campaigning to have NASA release a photograph of the Earth. Uh, and the, how he got this idea, he was tripping out on LSD on this rooftop, and he, in the middle of his trip, he looked out, and all of these skyscrapers were sort of going up in the sky and kind of tilting a little bit. And he said, what if I were a little bit higher? And they started imagining what the Earth would look like if he went higher and higher and higher until he could see the curvature of the Earth and then the whole Earth thing. And he he got the idea that we needed to have but that. But, th- you know, think about it. At that time, there was literally no such image out there. We're used to seeing images like this That's- now, but there was no such image at the time. There was no image like that, and NASA had, wasn't even thinking about taking it and releasing it. So he made buttons. He said, and he, had, and he would put them at, sell them all over uh, San Francisco. Whole Earth. We need a NASA. We need a whole Earth picture. So finally, in 1967, using the ATS-3 satellite— NASA took an Earth photo and released it, and that became a powerful symbol, and he put it on the first edition of the Whole Earth Catalog. Now, here's why he started the Whole Earth Catalog. He was in this hippie movement, and it turns out these hippies couldn't do anything, couldn't do anything at all. Because they were all, as he says, liberal arts majors. Yeah, here's this is him <laughs> in his own words. Here's a 45-second clip of him, uh, uh, you know, explaining this. I'd been part of founding of a couple of communes. I visited a number of communes. And the communes were trying to reinvent civilization, which was bold and admirable, and doing it poorly because they were all liberal arts majors who <laughs> dropped out who had no idea how to do anything, garden or build a building or anything. So my perspective was to try to bring, because I've been trained as a scientist, as a biologist, to bring a kind of a respect for science and for technology and engineering and making things to that movement. And the whole Earth Catalog access to tools was an effort to basically enable the skills that would be needed to reinvent civilization. Yeah, that was his whole philosophy, give people tools. Yes, because... This is what Buckminster Fuller would always say. You can define a civilization by their tools because their tools empower them to be able to do things. So he wanted the whole Earth Catalog to be a collection of tools, like he had how to build a geodesic dome, for instance. He had tools for plowing the earth, for planting, for farming, for just 
and and actually the whole Earth catalog at that time was like Google is today. People would buy that and they would look up what they needed to for the commune because back then there was no Google. There was really not an internet widely used, and he created it. Now in '68, Brand uh, uh, assisted Douglas. Engelbart with the a mother of all demos. This is where they demonstrated the revolutionary computer technology that include hypertext, where you could click on it. Email included the mouse, a graphical user interface. They, it, you know, helped them demonstrate it at the fall uh, uh, computer conference there in San Francisco. And you know, it took another 20 years, nearly 15, 20 years before these things really became, you know, com- consumer uh, items. It, it That is exactly right. But, yeah. but brand felt after working with Engelbart on that demonstration that if you could give man the necessary information that human beings could make the world a better place environmentally, socially, and sustainable. So he believed that the the internet was sort of the key to saving the earth. And he, um, he, um, he, he got very much involved with the nascent Internet technology that was coming out back then. It's important, too, to remember, since he was interested in communes, he was basically creating an electronic version of a commune. This was a whole idea behind having a community life on the Internet. That's right. And so, you know, communes were like a community. Then you, you had a community life. You could build things. You could do things. You could interact. And, and what he did in order to figure out what tools were needed, he and his wife— they, they, they had a 1963 Dodge truck, and they would drive around to the different communes and talk to people to try to get ideas for the whole Earth catalog. Now, in, uh, now in uh, 1968, uh, when, his, uh, when, he, when he put together this whole Earth catalog, he, he just used basic typesetting. It was a page layout. It was sort of done like a paste out. It was very not, not, not sophisticated, but it was really designed to get the word out of what the tools would be. Now, the first oversized catalog and its successors in the 1970 included things that could serve as useful tools for the communes. He also had reviews. Just like Amazon has reviews, he had people would write reviews, they put the reviews in there. So this is really like an Amazon case. Now, and it would tell you where you could buy it. They didn't sell the products, but they would say, well, this is a good place to buy this particular tool. So people would go to that. They would look at the tool. There would be reviews on the tool, and they, they could order it. Uh, now, the second uh, catalog, he had a different picture. Remember, they, they, they had a shot of from the moon where they saw the Earthrise. And so he put the Earthrise picture on the second Whole Earth catalog. And... Uh, because he felt that if people saw the earth standing in this black, inhospitable space, that we would cherish the earth and take care of it, and he thought it would change our perspective. Yeah, he said um, in an interview that, you know, this would end the flat earth idea, that which seems boundless and endless. He, we would realize we're just this little capsule in the middle of a very inhospitable environment, and that we better treasure it and take care of it. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and now he had a chord with these communes. His 1972 edition sold one and a half million copies. I mean, people were really reading the whole Earth catalog. Now, he, 
but he he wanted to actually do more. He wanted to get he wanted to create a dialogue between people. So he created what he called the Co-Evolution Quarterly, which was a place for full-length articles on specific topics in natural sciences and inventions. And um, and uh, and it was really uh, for educated uh, lay people. And he, he launched this in 1974 to get, he wanted to get a dialogue where we could figure things out and talk through it. Like he was a very... He was really a deep thinker. Like he, he was, uh, he was a, an early environmentalist. He wanted to save the earth, but then he didn't like the radical environmental movement. For instance, I, I saw this one article. You know, CO two gas was increasing in the atmosphere. Well, he said the fact is CO two plants love it. The more CO two is, the better the plants. The more plants you have. So he had pictures of the earth showing that the earth was becoming more green as the CO2 was increasing. Now, what's interesting, from his perspective, you get more plants because there's more CO2. The plants create oxygen, and so the plants themselves are all like self-correcting. They correct the atmosphere on their own. So the earth is kind of self-correcting, and what he didn't like about the environmentalists, they just give one side of the story and not the whole story. Yeah, he always says whatever change is happening, look backwards and see also from a different perspective. And in, that was a TED Talk interview, uh-huh. and he actually had a, an image then, a global image of how much green there was yes. on the planet and that it's actually increasing at this time. That's right. And he said people like Al Gore don't don't don't, don't say that. I mean there 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 are many issues here. He was really upset with the fact that the environmentalists wouldn't uh, allow nuclear power. He said nuclear power is the best way for us to get energy without damaging the environment. And for some reason, they were against it. Now, he founded the Whole Earth Software Review, which was a supplement to the Whole Earth Catalog, and that merged eventually with the Coevolution Quarterly in 1985. Now, As you can see, he was trying to create dialogue that centered on the communes as they were trying to reinvent reinvent society. And then at the same time, the Internet came out. So in 1985, he created, he and Larry Brilliant uh, founded The Well, which was the Whole Earth Electronic Link. Whole Earth Electronic Link, The Well, and it was an online virtual community. Um, what he wanted to do was create uh, the kind of dialogue that you get at a commune, but move it to a virtual dialogue between people. And he wanted to create an environment where people could actually grow and interact. Now, the idea behind the well was inspired by Douglas Engelbart's work at SRI, Stanford Research Institute, and the and the, and the mother of all demos. Um, he actually, with the well, and the well still exists. You can go down to well.com. You can find it. And it was a very civilized way for people to exchange information. And people formed groups and they— But you talked about uh, off-air before the show. You you were saying there was a very specific reason why it's so civilized, and yeah. that is because— Because you ha- there was you could not be anonymous. That is a big key— you, Real names. You take responsibility for what you say. That's right. So they required real names, and so people, and then they would talk in full sentences, and they would actually have intelligent conversation. And people loved the well, and they became steadfast friends because of the well. They would travel together on vacations. It became a 
true uh, extension of the of the communes. Now, in 2000, Brand helped launch the All Species Foundation. He was he was trying to show uh, how many species there are on Earth, and um, you know, and how many we're losing. He was trying to show the the sort of the evolution of species. He he didn't think we were, we were really entering the sixth great extinction. I mean, he wanted to show that we're not losing that many species and that we're gaining other species. And he was and he wanted to track it. During 1986, he um, he was a visiting scientist at the MIT Media Labs. He he co-founded the Business Network in 1988. Now that explores the global futures and business strategies and informed by values. He, he thought businesses should be motivated by values to help society. Uh, now, the global, global business network um, uh, involved thinking and planning and strategy and long-term planning that would be good for the business and also good for the earth. Now, the whole earth catalog inspired an ideal human project that depended on decentralized, personal, and liberating technological developments. He, he, he felt that, that human beings could really solve the Earth's problems if they could just work together. Now, he was uh, highly critical of the, uh, of the uh, environmental movement, so he wrote a, uh, he, he wrote a, um, uh, a book, which he called The Whole Earth Discipline, an Eco-Pragmatic Pragmatic Manifesto in, in 2009, an eco-pragmatic manifesto. He's, you know, pra- he had to be a pragmatist. So nuclear power is going to help you do nuclear power. Because and, he's science-driven, and with nuclear, he felt that the benefits outweigh the risks. He didn't right. say there are no risks. He said the benefits outweigh them. The benefits outweigh the risks. Yeah. And, and finally, he, um, he, he started what he called the Long Now Foundation. He, he thought we needed long-term thinking, uh, like— like if you want to look at uh, di- diversity of species in the world, you, you might want to think in terms of 100 years or 200 years as opposed to two to three years. And so he wanted to create long-term thinking, and so he created the Long Now Foundation, and there were a series of seminars about long-term thinking. They called them SALTs, and they, and they brought in thought leaders from around the world to give these seminars, and, uh, and, and, and this was a way to influence thinking uh, so we could, we could, humans could solve the Earth's problems. I mean, in the in the whole Earth catalog, he had this one uh, statement that was kind of controversial. It said, "We're gods, so we better get good at it." In other words, we we can control the environment of the Earth, so we better do it with intention and get good at it. That was his point. Now, he never really went for money. His net worth is estimated in 2020 at about $13 million. Still pretty impressive. Yeah, not bad. But, but for all that he's done, he, he didn't make money on the well. He wasn't really trying to get make money on the well. So this is sort of a look at how the formative stages of the Internet began coming out of the hippie movement and how that evolved into the first virtual um, – virtual um, community, the well. Now, that's everything you wanted to know about uh, Stuart Brand, the man who started the Whole Earth Catalog and the Whole Earth Movement, and the founder of the well and the man who's trying to influence us into long-term thinking to make this world a better place. Hey, man, so uh, we're about to take a trip of our own. 
pour yourself a sugar-laced coffee, pull up a bean bag, uh, because we're about to get heavy with Doc Shirts and his observations from the faculty lounge. Um, go right in. I think the uh, dead are still playing there. Hang on. Here, here, here they are. Yeah, here they are. One little piggy. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. We're going to talk about the well. And the transition from the well to Facebook, answering the simple question, what went wrong? Now, when Stuart Brand and Larry Brilliant founded the Whole Earth Electronic Link in 1985, they wanted to start a dialogue between fiercely independent writers and readers of the Whole Earth Review. It became a location where the online community movement was born, where Howard Rheingold first coined the term virtual community. Now, this is what Howard Rheingold said about the well. He said, finding the well was like discovering a cozy little world that had been flourishing without me. I soon discovered that I was audience, performer, scriptwriter, along with my companions in an ongoing improvisation. They invited me to help create something new. The well felt like an authentic community from the start where it was grounded in the everyday physical world. Well members made fast friends. They created enduring traditions. They gathered casually face-to-face -face in cities around the world, and they provided mutual support. They founded organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation or Craigslist. Now, you did not need an, or an invitation to join the well, to become part of the well, but you needed to have your real name. 
The goal of the well was to facilitate dialogue, not to make money. You know how they uh, say nowadays Facebook friends aren't real friends? Yeah. These people at the well, they were real friends. They were real friends. Many, many of them were. They were real friends. And then Facebook came. What went wrong? Uh, Facebook was born, and, uh, and it was a platform designed to make money in the image of Mark Zuckerberg. Now, here's a short litany of Mark Zuckerberg's miscalculations. In 2003, one year before Facebook was founded, a website called FaceMash non-consensually scraped pictures of students at Harvard from the Harvard dorm websites from the school's intranet. Which is worse than the website. I mean, this is actually yeah, a private net. Yeah, it's from the net. school's intranet. It's yeah. from the school's private net. They scrape pictures of especially girls from the, uh, from the intranet, and then they posted them on FaceMash, and they asked users to say hot or not, to rate their hotness. It caused an outroar. Because he did it without permission. Mark Zuckerberg offered an apology. He says, well, I'll, I won't do that again. We're about to detect a pattern here. Remember That's the right. word apology. Apology. Yeah. Uh, then in 2004, Zuckerberg co-founded Facebook, which rapidly spread from Harvard to other universities. In 2006, Facebook blindsided users with the launch of the news feed without any privacy controls. People were outraged. Their private pictures of drinking from a beer bong at last Saturday's party all of a sudden was shown on a news feed that went around the country. Zuckerberg said, I had no idea people would be worried, and he apologized. In 2007, Facebook's beacon advertising system was launched without proper controls or consent. It ended up compromising user privacy by making all purchases public. And yet again, Zuckerberg said, I had no idea this would happen. I'm sorry. I'll do better in the future. I'm glad we're not doing a drinking game based on the word apology right now. That's right. It could be disastrous. In 2010, Facebook violated users' privacy by making key types of information public without consent or or warning. Users were outraged. (laughs) And Mark Zuckerberg, again, Apologize. Doc, he said, I'll do narrative. better in the future. This is poetry. Everything, is. <laughs> every verse ends with the same. <laughs> Between 2008 and 2015, Facebook allowed thousands of apps to scrape data from Facebook users and, and their friends. Now, one sets app, which was run by Cambridge University, siphoned the data from 87 million users and forwarded it to a company Uh, associate with Cambridge University called Cambridge Analytica. And that was used for political purposes in the U.S. election. When people discovered that Zuckerberg had shared all this data to help political campaigns, they were outraged. Mark Zuckerberg said, I'm sorry, I'll do better in the future. (laughs) You can see there is a pattern. He said, I'm really sorry that this is last. I'm really sorry that this happened. This was certainly a breach of trust. <laughs> now, actually, Facebook is incorrigible with Zuckerberg at its helm. Even when they changed the new name to Meta, 
which is now going to be the metaverse. Think about it. Mark Zuckerberg wants to have users in a virtual reality world with avatars, and they'll be locked in this virtual reality metaverse. And he says that will be better, if you can imagine that. Mark Zuckerberg's dream job is to become CEO of the Matrix. And he wants to lock everybody in the Matrix, which is what he's calling the metaverse. And he's going to rename Facebook Meta. I think Facebook is incorrigible. Now, if you contrast that with the well, the well was not designed to make money. It was designed to stimulate collaboration. The, the well did not have a news feed. The news feed is the great evil on Facebook. That's what creates all of this engagement where people get into fights. Uh, it did not have the news feed, and it was designed to be civil discourse with real names and real people. Facebook, I think, in general, has been bad for the planet. And what happened with the well was good for the planet. But what happened was, as always, money crowded out the good. Facebook makes so much money that the investors just kept being more and more and more in it. And um, I really think something's going to have to change. So what do you think of this metaverse? Uh, well, I, I was I was asking you before. I mean, this this is not The Sims or something. This isn't like a simulation game. You actually enter in, in the metaverse. You will actually enter into a real sort of virtual room, mm -hmm. and you will actually in, in, encounter your, let's say, your family. You want to yeah. have a family gathering, and they won't be simulated characters. They'll be your actual family members participating at the same time with you in with this you. virtual meeting. And, and everybody will be wearing, he wants everybody to wear virtual reality goggles. So it'll be a Oculus. lot like, we, we talked about Jaron Lanier doing this, uh, yeah. where he was trying to set up um, meetings, but you know, like for scientific mm -hmm. or business purposes, where you would actually talk to somebody else, but you would be seated, right. and he, you'd see this person seated in front. And now he, Mark Zuckerberg wants to create a whole lifestyle based on this, where you're pretty much immersed in this at all times. So, so I could see it would be nice to sit down with your family and have a conversation like they're in the room with you. But in Mark Zuckerberg's world, they're going to be blimps flying by with advertising signs, <laughs> yeah. okay? There's, there's going to be... You're going to be immersed in advertising. You know, all he needs He's going to be, his whole goal is not to help you have dialogue, but it's to make money. Well, the, the meeting room just needs, wherever you're meeting with your family, just needs to have a giant screen TV, and there'll be ads <laughs> blasting on that thing all day long, I think. So I'm really thinking we need something like the well. Now, you can go back and look at the well. There, there, it's, there hasn't been much activity since 2009, actually. It's the well. It's well.com. Well.com, www.well.com. It's interesting to go back and look at it, look at their how they organized it. I think we need to go back to something like that. I, I, I'm not on Facebook, actually. And the only time I used Facebook was I went back to a high school reunion. It was amazing. I could find my uh, the friends I graduated with from, uh, from high school. I, I, I located most of those friends within about two days on Facebook. It is amazing to make connections on Facebook. So Facebook has a lot of elements that are really good, but this whole feed and engagement and trying to make money on it is really not good because what makes Facebook money tends to hurt others. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about the trivia of the week. Uh, this would be the first MP3 song. It's really kind of an interesting story. Now, in the early 80s, a German electrical engineer 
He was a doctoral candidate. Carl Heinz Brandenburg was working his dissertation. He was focused on uh, digital audio encoding, recording, and perceptual measurement techniques. He wanted to find a way to compress audio, and he came up with the MP3 audio format, which is a lossy compression, which means some information is lost, but he lost information that you couldn't hear anyway. So he did a lot of testing of the algorithm to see what he could lose without having it, without you perceiving the loss. Now, to test the quality of the com- compression algorithm he was creating, he, he felt that human vocals uh, were better for testing it than instrumentals because the ear is highly tuned to listen to, to vocals. So he actually selected a, um, to test his algorithm, he selected a 1987 Capella version of the hit song Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega. He used her voice as the benchmark as he refined his MP3 system. And, uh, and he used that extensively. And Tom Diners became known as the mother of the MP3. So this is what it sounded like. This is actually cut one of her debut album from 1987. And she is singing uh, and on track one. She sings it completely without accompaniment. Uh, at the end of the album, there's a second track where she has a musical accompaniment. But the version we all know is actually from a 1990 when it was redone by a, a German. It was remixed by a, a German group called DNA. But this is what it sounded like uh, the first time around. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. And he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in so this is basically you know voice alone and he really found that this was the perfect thing to sample uh to so he could tool around with uh, the sound the quality of a human voice that's right and she was sitting actually when she wrote this song in tom's restaurant which is an actual restaurant in new york well, city it's more, it's more than that so it's an actual <laughs> restaurant on the upper west side 112th street and the thing about it is it is also the same if you're a Seinfeld fan. That is the image they always used for the fictional Monk's Cafe wow. where they were gathering, but it was actually Tom's restaurant in, in New York City. Wow. Yeah. Well, we're about to ready to say goodbye, aren't we, uh, Doc? We are almost out. Listen, <laughs> yeah. we, we, we love all your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And uh, check out our programs at www.stratford.edu. And uh, when you call Stratford, tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Oh, this rain, it will continue through the morning as I'm listening to the bells of the cathedral. I am thinking of your voice. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.